It's Thursday, January 30th, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. Lawmakers gather in Salem next week for their short session. Will Republicans walk out again? Central Oregon cities prepare to be headquarters for first responders in case of a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. Changes come to parking in downtown Eugene. And a new class at LCC studies the incidence of birds flying into windows. Those stories and more in this episode of the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Northwest Passage. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm reporter Ryan Bull. And I'm news reporter Chris Lehman. So Chris, let's start with you. The state legislature gathers next week in Salem for its short session. This is a month or so long, even year session that's meant to give lawmakers a chance to make tweaks to budgets and handle other issues. Um, With all the tension from last year's session, when Republicans walked out twice, are we expecting more of the same? Well, that is the big question, really. At this time, we really don't know whether there's going to be another walkout. Uh, It's quite possible even the lawmakers uh, themselves, the Republicans, don't know that. But certainly all the signs are there for it being a possibility. It's, It's kind of unusual because usually when legislative sessions start, whether it's the long session or the the short session, usually the first few days are kind of, you know, hey, everybody's back in the building having a good time and until you really get down to business. But there doesn't seem to be any bit of a, a, of a kumbaya period uh, this time around. So we, we could find out as early as 8.30 on Monday morning whether or not the Republicans are even going to show up, particularly in the Senate. So it's possible that the Republicans could just not even come to the session. It, yeah. I mean, there, there's really, I mean, it's it's uncharted territory in a way. I mean, yes, they did walk out twice uh, during the long session. But, I mean, the, the total length of their absences were relatively short when compared to a five-month long session. I mean, they were there most of the time, and they did uh, eventually come back on the last weekend and and passed a bunch of bills with the Democrats. Um, But we have a, a possibility here of the Republicans simply not showing up to Salem at all for an entire five-week session. I mean, logistically speaking, could they do it? Could they they stay away? Uh, I mean, they, they've sort of figured out how to, how to do that last time, last June. Um, so, you know, it could go into the books as the, the year without a session. And as I recall, last year, Chris, the points of contention were a cap-and-trade bill, education funding, and a bill about vaccines. And it sounds like those those elements could be back in play again, too, which I think is also kind of feeding this prospect that there may be a walkout or a no-show. Sure. And one by one, I mean, the education funding bill, which triggered the first walkout um, in May, I believe it was, uh, that bill eventually did pass and is now law. So um, other than possibly tweaking it here and there, there that doesn't seem to be a potential trigger anytime um, soon again. Uh, the vaccine bill was part of the deal that brought lawmakers, uh, Republicans, back to the Capitol uh, the, after their first walkout. That bill was was killed, and it I, I haven't heard any serious uh, rumors or, you know, conversations about bringing it back during this short session. So it's it's really the, the cap-and-trade bill, the carbon 
reduction bill. I mean, it has a variety of different names that it goes by, but that's the one that really got Republicans up in arms. They said it would be devastating to rural economies. Democrats say it's a necessary tool to combat climate change. Um, you know, that debate doesn't seem to be over anytime soon, but sort of the practicality of are we going to bring a bill back that didn't have enough votes last time? Uh, you know, what is the point? You largely have the same group of lawmakers. Democrats say they've made some changes to the bill. Republicans say those changes are basically window dressing. Um, and it, it should be noted from a procedural standpoint, I mean, Democrats do have a sizable majority in the legislature, but they need a few Republicans uh, to have a quorum. So Republicans are necessary for the legislative process just by their physical presence, even if you don't need any of their votes to pass a bill. Uh, House Republicans did not walk out during the last legislative session, so you could have the Oregon House conducting business, but any bill they pass would you know, have to go over to the Senate at some point. So, I mean, you, you could have a, a case where the House meets and passes dozens of bills, but none of them actually become law. And Chris, I understand that Democratic lawmakers are looking at making changes to the quorum rules so that um, a Republican walkout would not have the same sway that it did in the last session. That's right. That has been uh, proposed, and it would not uh, affect uh, the legislature this time around because that would require a change in the Oregon Constitution, which requires a vote by the the voting public. So uh, at, at most, they could refer that to the ballot and voters would vote on it uh, in November, and then, you know, depending on the effective date, it would go into effect for the next legislative session. However, the, the catch-22 there, of course, is that if Republicans don't even show up to the state capitol this session, then Democrats can't approve something to go onto the ballot in November. Um, so, I mean, there's alternate ways of doing that, namely through the initiative process, and, and some union groups have filed paperwork to do that through the initiative process. But, of course, that requires a lot of money and, and signatures to get all that in place to, to go on the ballot. So uh, I think the, the Democrats would prefer just to be able to do it through the legislative process, which is to say put it on the ballot through the legislative process. Kind of a proactive veto by absence, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be interested to see how this session goes. Sure. And I mean, you know, there's there's obviously other bills. I mean, if you if Democrats, for instance, were to say, OK, we're going to take that carbon uh, tax issue off the table for now, um, you know, there's still plenty of other work that they have to do. Some um, budgetary uh, things, as you mentioned, uh, universities are hoping for some bonding for additional uh, construction projects. Um, and there's, a, you know, quite a lot of things that they can do in five weeks. But it, it's a very short session. Everybody says it, it's sort of like the, the last couple of weeks of the regular legislative session are, uh, a, you know, crunch time. But here it's like crunch time begins on day one. Uh, so they, they really have to get working quickly uh, if they want to actually get anything passed. Thank you, Chris. We'll be looking for your coverage starting next week. Um, so Brian, you have been working on the latest in our series on natural resources and resilience in Oregon that's funded by the Wayne Moore Center for Law and Politics at the U of O. That's right. And what are you focusing on this month? So, uh, as we talk about the Cascadia event that is anticipated between now and several hundred years, <laughs> uh, 
one of the things that I found very intriguing was the fact that uh, a lot of territory, if you will, uh, west of the I-5 corridor is going to be pretty pretty uh, wasted, I guess, if you will, by a major 9.0 magnitude earthquake. And so where does that leave rescue and relief operations in the state? Well, if you look out to the east on the map, there are the communities of Bend and Redmond. I guess what puts this at a, a distinct advantage for those communities is that they have existing facilities uh, like the Redmond Airport, the Deschutes County Fairgrounds and Expo Center, and the Youth Challenge Facility that, according to uh, Andrew Phelps, who's the kind of the uh, head of the Oregon's Office of Emergency Management, are going to be basically the base of operations because a lot of existing facilities in Salem, Portland, Eugene, everything on the coast, definitely, is going to be out of commission and likely damage. And so the base of operations are going to be setting up in those two cities. As part of my coverage, I actually got to uh, go and tour the Redmond Airport and meet with some of the officials. Now, for the last decade, uh, Redmond Airport has invested $100 million uh, to fund improvements, which includes reinforcing which includes reinforcing the existing runways. Uh, also, the terminal has been expanded. I talked to Airport Director Zachary Bass, and he says in the next decade, too, there'll be another $100 million spent for further improvements, which includes adding 3,000 feet to the main runway. So what's the advantage of that, you may ask? Well, there are these huge transport planes, uh, C-17s and C-130s. Uh, that are likely going to be playing a major role in any relief and response operations after a Cascadian earthquake. Uh, these are huge aircraft. They're going to be carrying supplies to and from the affected sites. Airport engineer Fred Lollisher drove me around, and he says that one area they want to really improve on is fuel storage and capacity for those transports as well as response vehicles. And uh, current sources like those coastal ports aren't really expected to weather the 9.0 magnitude earthquake and a resultant tsunami too well. Off to the sharp right here, you can see our, those are city-owned fuel tanks. Two 20,000 gallons and one 10,000 gallon, I believe. You know, we don't want to be dependent on having fuel being trucked in, which a lot of it comes from that area of where that Cascadia event's going to happen. So if we had a pretty good stockpile of fuel here, um, obviously it would really benefit in a Cascadia event. And so by increasing fuel capacity and storage, you know, they can ensure that operations will maintain much better. Brian, one of the things that I wonder about is if, if we're expecting Bend and Redmond to be intact and everything west of I-5 to be possibly, um, you know, destroyed or or not functioning, mm. are they expecting a huge influx of the population to be going to, to central Oregon? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, um, when I spoke to uh, Redmond's mayor, George Endicott, he was outlining on a map just outside of the airports and uh, right in the uh, Deschutes County Fairgrounds, basically areas that were flat, graveled lots that they normally use for like RV events, big RV shows. Uh, but those could easily be turned into tent cities for the refugees that are going to be displaced by that disaster. And uh, initial estimates range anywhere from 25,000 to 100,000 to even collectively a million people wow. who are going to be uh, displaced and looking for refuge following a major disaster. And they're going to be expecting a pretty major exodus of survivors to go, to go pressing into the surrounding region, which includes central and eastern Oregon. So Mayor Endicott hopes that fellow officials, essentially other mayors and other cities, 
uh, prepare for that massive group of people that will be coming in through the area. That's going to be straining a lot of existing resources like water, sewer, and power. Well, if you read the resilience report, the early estimate was 100,000. I was talking to some of the uh, folks over in Salem, and they said, you know, you could think closer to a million which I don't know how we could accommodate that. The whole region then would have to ramp up to help. The other thing I'll, I'll quickly mention too is that on site near the Redmond Airport is the Central Oregon Interagency Dispatch Center. And that's used right now as a coordination site for wildfires, but that can easily be repurposed for a Cascadia event. Mm. Uh, the other thing I'll quickly throw in is that um, aside from just being logistically um, ideal for a post-Cascadia response, uh, the cities of Ben and Redmond are also well-placed uh, geologically. Here's Ian Maiden. He's with the Oregon Department of Geology and Mineral Industries, and here he explains what makes these two areas uh, so well-placed. The subduction zone fault runs 50 to 80 miles off the Oregon coast. As you get further and further away from the fault, the shaking diminishes. By the time you get to Bend, you're 180 miles away from the fault. Everybody will know that it's happened. They'll feel it, but it just won't be strong enough to break things. Now, one thing I will share, though, that I also learned in my features, is that even though, as far as the Cascadia subduction zone goes, Bend and Redmond are very well outside of the uh, major impact area there, uh, they are not isolated from potential seismic activity themselves. In fact, there's a whole family of crustal faults, the Sisters Fault Zone and the Metolius Fault Zone that extend from the Newbury Volcano all the way up to Mount Jefferson and running right through downtown Bend. Oh, so, no. so those communities aren't quite in the clear themselves. So hopefully uh, if the Cascadia Subduction Zone has a massive earthquake, hopefully it's not going to trigger any other existing earthquakes through those fault lines. So mm. that's just something to keep an eye on. Wow. Well, we look forward to hearing your story, and that'll be at our website, klcc.org. Our reporter, Karen Richards, looked into some changes to parking in Eugene this week. There's a lot of new construction happening on the U of O campus and downtown with the Fifth Street Market expansion. But Jeff Petrie with the city's parking office says building a new parking garage is not at the top of their list. And we've looked at that. That's 20 to 30, maybe $40 million. And the debt service payment, which is like a mortgage payment, is 2 to $3 million per year. That's a lot of money to invest in a parking garage, and that may be the right decision. But we want to use some new technology, gather data on how people are parking and moving around the downtown core and campus area. So Petrie says that cameras on their new electric parking patrol vehicles will give them a good map of how parking spaces are used. And they're working with Lane Transit District, Bike Share, and Scooter providers to come up with options for uh, the additional visitors expected for upcoming um, track and field events here in Eugene. Now, I mentioned those elect those new electronic um, parking vehicles. These are Chevy Bolts. Mm -hmm. And so instead of chalking, putting chalk marks on the backs of tires, the city is now using these um, Chevy Bolt vehicles, and they have this license plate recognition app. They say this new system oh, wow. is less expensive and more accurate. There are concerns about privacy um, with this new system. The city, though, says it only keeps images of, of people's cars, vehicles, and um, license plates for 30 days. Huh. So um, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. In fact, um, 
our own parking garage here, the one that I use anyway, I think they said stop using your passes. Exactly. The little hanging paper thing on the uh, on the rearview mirror, and they're just going to use some type of license plate recognition software too. It sounds like. So. Yeah, that's part of the whole the city's new parking system. Wow. Huh. This is the Northwest Passage. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. This is the Northwest Passage. I'm Rachel McDonald with Chris Lehman and Brian Bull, and it's time for us to talk about something else from the news that we um, that's on our minds this week. Brian? Well, I have an interesting little story out of Lane Community College, which is our license holder. And, um, you know, we've all had that kind of unsettling experience, I'm sure, where you're just uh, reading a book by the window or just gazing out. And as you are admiring the landscape, all of a sudden you just hear a big thunk, and you look down, and there is a bird lying prone on the ground, and that is uh, an unfortunate circumstance of, I guess, our modern technology. Uh, glass window panes oftentimes dupe birds in thinking that uh, the window is actually nothing, and <laughs> they can easily fly through. And uh, there is an effort right now to start canvassing the campus, uh, six campus buildings, I should say, for bird carcasses. A biology professor by the name of Colin Pfeiffer is having the students uh, survey the buildings for about a seven-week period and tracking numbers of birds they find on the ground outside these windows uh, near the so-called bird window collision hotspots. And what this is going to do is it's going to actually inform uh, the sustainability efforts of the college and also in turn uh, maybe uh, influence design of buildings and windows. Buildings, for example, we want more windows because that allows for more natural light. That actually means we can turn our lights on less, which helps us save energy, which is good for sustainability. But we also want to look at the consequence of that. And one may be that birds have a harder time seeing that surface, seeing that window, and actually hit it. So, you know, uh, bird watchers especially have been uh, really hard on cats, uh, feral cats, especially for causing a, a decline in numbers of birds out there in the wilderness. But actually, according to Pfeiffer, uh, windows are the second largest contributor on the continent to bird deaths. So, you know, if you're with the cat lobby, then you got a little uh, <laughs> breathing room there to make your case that it's not all just the uh, our four-legged friends. Windows themselves are adding a, a potential risk. So what they may do, according to Pfeiffer, is after they've gathered their researches, um, he says in the long term he may work with the Lane Community College Art Department and design some type of window or decal that will actually keep those birds from flying into windows and decrease bird fatalities. Yeah, I think that having something on your window, um, we have, you know, little paper cutouts, um, like snowflake cutouts on our front window. Oh, and, sure. And we, we have, in the past, we had a bird fly into our window, but since we have that on there, it seems to be helping. And on the uh, Facebook posting for my story, there's been a handful of comments from some of our longtime listeners saying, yeah, you just need to put like a, uh, I think a, a UV um, blinder or something mm. on it. Or, yeah, stickers, um, cutaways, snowflakes, anything at all that just kind of gives a bird the sense that, you know, oh, there's something actually attached. This is a surface that I shouldn't be flying through. <laughs> 
Well, Brian, I think that's the the first time I've ever heard anybody describe Windows as modern technology. But I guess when you think about it, it over the entire evolutionary history of of the Songbird, uh, Windows glass windows are a relatively recent addition. Yeah, I guess I'm stretching the uh, definition of modern by a few hundred <laughs> years or maybe a millennia. But uh, more than that. You know, I grew up watching the Flintstones when they didn't have any glass. So, <laughs> Chris, um, what do you have to share? Well, uh, I've been looking at a lot of different uh, lawmaker newsletters. A, a, a lot of our local lawmakers send out a constituent newsletter prior to the start of a legislative session, and those can be uh, interesting to read through to see what's on their minds. Uh, but there was one that stood out this week from uh, Representative Dan Rayfield, a Democrat from Corvallis, who did outline some of his priorities and goals for the session, but he also attached a video update that he recorded, uh, it looks like, in his house. And uh, what made it interesting um, is that he had enlisted the help of his son, who uh, looks to be about five or six years old. And, uh, you know, maybe you might remember that BBC interview from a few years ago where the, you know, an expert on, I believe, uh, South Korea was talking and his kids wandered into the background during a live interview. Well, uh, Representative uh, Rayfield, I guess, uh, was anticipating that possibility and invited his son to join him. Um, His son played with stuffed animals beside him, put some on the representative's head. Uh, It was was quite amusing and, and yes, uh, a little charming, especially for those of us who've uh, worked from home sometimes and and had kids interrupt us. Um, And at the end, he even had his son... Um, sort of almost do kind of like a magic eight ball sort of thing where uh, the representative asked him if if things certain things would pass this session or not and the kid said you know probably or hopefully or or that kind of thing so anyway kind of a, a fun take on the legislative session preview this week that's that, great that's one thing we don't have to worry so much about in radios is we oftentimes don't have something visual with someone walking in on us while we're trying to do a two-way but I have been stepped on by cats before while trying to do two ways. <laughs> well, one of the big uh, stories that's affecting public radio happened last week when NPR, All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly, met with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for an interview that um, was aired on Fridays, All Things Considered. And the interview went kind of south because um, Pompeo became very angry and sort of bombastic with Mary Louise Kelly basically getting upset with her for not sticking to only questions about Iran, even though they had not actually made an agreement beforehand that she would only ask about Iran. She was also Mm. asking about Ukraine. And um, there's been a lot of analysis of this interview and a lot of support for Mary Louise Kelly um, that we've been seeing on social media and from other NPR reporters and hosts. So I'd really encourage folks, if you haven't gotten to, to hear that interview, to check it out. Um, and also, um, I've been struck by the analysis from NPR's public editor, Elizabeth Jensen. She kind of goes through the interview and talks about what happened with it and also um, responds to some listener feedback from the interview. Um, but but one of the things that I think just is a big takeaway for me is is just, first of all, that Mary Louise Kelly is a really strong reporter and yeah. she was doing everything right. She kept her cool and she was polite to the Secretary of State even when he got nasty. Right. And um, 
you know, that that it's it can be challenging for reporters in these situations when you're with somebody who is um, intimidating. He's a person in power. And yet you're trying to get information and the truth out to your audience. Yeah, I was very impressed with um, her handling of the interview, too. And from the description, it sounds like he was just trying to stick to some of the talking points. And Mary Louise Kelly was not letting him get away with that, as a fair number of reporters might. And yeah, you can certainly sense the discomfort between them. And then to hear the account of how he calls her into his living room and berates her for about almost the same entirety of the interview, and then challenges her to find Ukraine on a map. I mean, which apparently uh, she did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, there's so much contentiousness between this administration and the media, more than I think I've ever seen in any recent administration before. In fact, um, I believe it was like a day or two after at a, a unrelated event, President Trump uh, praised Pompeo. He says, I guess he really took that female journalist to task or something like that. And there was laughter and applause. So, I mean, it's just one of those that seems like everyone wants to claim a victory here. But, I mean, I think from a journalistic standpoint, Mary Louise Kelly, Kelly came out looking better for it because she was simply doing her job and not being antagonistic, but simply sticking to the questions and maintaining, I think, a very respectful professional tone. So, yeah, I certainly think that uh, she came out of it looking good, and I think it's a good model, but also a good warning that um, with some officials, you're going to be blindsided or steamrolled if you let this happen. Well, I've, I, I noticed a, a few days ago on Twitter that uh, a reporter for a different news organization, uh, the name uh, of the reporter escapes me at the moment, but uh, apparently he submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the State Department for the uh, the unmarked map that uh, was presented to Mary Louise Kelly uh, to point out Ukraine on. And uh, uh, the official response from the State Department was that the, the request was complicated and would take time to fulfill so wow <laughs> i think well it'll be interesting to see what they actually produce if anything i was struck by that well why does he happen to have this unmarked map is this something that he's in the habit of doing having people identify countries well sure yeah that was that was a question yeah <laughs> yeah that's a really weird one just just to bring up one more thing is that Joshua Johnson, the former host of 1A, went on social media and kind of called out for people to use their own um, point to something on a map game and and point to somewhere on the map of the United States and then give to that public radio station in honor of Mary Louise Kelly. Well, I think it's a little unfair, though, to those of us on the, the West Coast, because, uh, you, you know, if you point at random to a U.S. map, you, you're probably less likely to end up somewhere out here than you would in the Midwest. But at any rate, we'll let that slide. Well, maybe you'll end up contributing to um, the public radio station in Kansas, where Mike Pompeo is <laughs> from. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Good point. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. And I'm reporter Brian Bull. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC, 